And finally, a very special thank you to Dr. Linda Brandt from Counseling who made this event possible. She heard um, Jeremy McCarter speak at a bookstore and I think she basically stalked him since September or October and was like outside of his house until he said yes, he would come here today. So I think he's partly here today because he wants to talk to us and partly to just get Linda to leave him alone. So um, thank you, Linda, for all of your work and inspiration for today. We will, um, at, uh, Jeremy's going to talk for a little bit. There'll be time for some Q&A. Our students will have microphones. Raise your hands. They will come to you. When we're done, uh, Mr. McCarter will be signing books outside in the lobby where you came in. We had a bit of a mix-up with the book. So if you don't have a book, he will sign um, a book plate for you, and our bookstore can order books and we'll call you when they come in. So we can get you a book if you don't have one. If you have your own book, he will absolutely sign that. So um, again, I think I remembered everything. Thank you all for coming, and I'm gonna turn it over to um, Dr. Linda Brandt, who will do our official introduction. Thank you again. Good morning, everybody, and one more round of applause for Troy Swanson and everything he does for this school. So I am delighted and excited to be introducing you to our speaker today, Jeremy McCarter. Jeremy McCarter is the co-author of the book, Hamilton the Revolution, with Lin-Manuel Miranda, a number one New York Times bestseller. But I also see Jeremy McCarter, in a sense, as the historian for this Broadway phenomenon. The book traces the inception, development, and implementation of the musical Hamilton from its earliest performance at the White House to its landmark opening night on Broadway six years later. Jeremy McCarter is a writer, critic, director, and producer. He spent five years on the artistic staff of the Public Theater in New York, where he created and ran the Public Forum series of performances and conversations. This series brought together America's leading actors, activists, writers, scholars, musicians, and community leaders to explore the intersection of the arts and society. He has also written about culture and politics for New York Magazine, Newsweek, and the New York Times. Jeremy was a friend of Lin-Manuel Miranda and encouraged the public theater's artistic director to take on Miranda's developing project. With McCarter's support, Hamilton debuted off-Broadway in the public theater on its way to winning 11 Tony Awards. I was first unbelievably lucky to see Hamilton in the spring of 2016 in New York. And yes, it was amazing and indescribable. I then heard Jeremy McCarter talk about his book, last summer at Printer's Row Lit Fest in Chicago. He was not only entertaining and knowledgeable, but he seemed to capture the essence of the musical and the book. As Jeremy describes in the book, it is a chronicle of two revolutions, the American Revolution of the 18th century and a musical that changes the way Broadway sounds. I knew then that it would be a rare opportunity to hear this man talk about the creative process behind the show. So with the help of Tish Hayes, librarian extraordinaire, I started emailing, sort of stalking, but mostly emailing Jeremy, <laughs> doing what I could to get him to speak here today. 
We wanted to show Jeremy that Moraine Valley Community College is an open access institution that serves a wonderfully diverse population. And because of its important mission and philosophy, it is worthy of his dynamic and inspiring words. Thank you, Jeremy, for being with us today. And I just found out that we can look forward to his new book, Young Radicals, a story of idealistic Americans fighting for their ideals, published by Random House and coming out this June. Congratulations, Jeremy. Both his new book and the musical are so inspiring because they show us how yesterday's revolutionaries can teach us about how to act in today's world. So please join me in welcoming Jeremy McCarter. Um, thank you, Linda, for that kind introduction and also being a role model, by far the nicest stalker I've ever had. Um, I would like to thank, uh, thank all of you for being here today. Uh, I'd like to thank Dean Franzek um, for his hospitality and for showing me around. You guys know how to make a theater guy feel right at home, right there in the middle of this beautiful green area is the Shakespeare Garden, which, like, what better for a place like that? Uh, and I'd like to thank everybody who's been uh, really gracious to me this morning, Troy and Tommy and Tish, people whose names don't start with T also. Um, uh, I'm happy to be here talking about this. I, I talk about Hamilton in lots of different places, but it, it wouldn't be apparent from looking at the book, I guess, but it is, it is a Chicago book, like I wrote it in this part of the world. Um, I moved here in 2014, the show opened in 2015, so a lot of that writing was done, was done like directly overhead where we are right now because I'm circling O'Hare, waiting for the traffic to clear so I can land. That's when on my laptop I was writing a lot of that stuff. And um, the second reason why I'm really happy to be here today is because I do think like the, the students who engage with this show are the most important people who engage with it. We'll come back to that later. Um, it's really exciting to think that, that the campus community has had a chance to all intersect with this, with this show, with those songs, with what my friend Lynn has created. I thought maybe what I'd do today is talk a little bit about my own personal experience of this craziness that we've been living through for the last few years, and maybe that will shed some light on on the experience that I hope you all have been having and will continue to have with Hamilton. Um, the shortest way to describe um, what this has felt like lately is that um, it's like living in a science fiction movie, uh, like a six year long science fiction movie that just gets progressively weirder like the longer it goes. Um, it's not supposed to happen that a Broadway musical becomes the thing that here we are all talking about uh, at 11 a.m. On a, on a weekday morning. Um, I first got to know Lynn because we saw eye to eye about something very important, which is hip hop. Um, he, of course, had grown up listening to it, as had I. Uh, about 15 years ago, I got started writing for newspapers and magazines in New York City. I was writing primarily about theater, but also about music and books and things like that. And there was one point that I made repeatedly, and now looking back sort of obnoxiously, which is that um, hip hop was not a kind of pop music like other kinds of pop music. Hip hop has this capacity for telling stories, really dense, intricate stories, in ways that as a theater person, that's what we're supposed to do in the theater, right? Just by show of hands, are there theater folks here, people who work in the theater here, some? Um, uh, by the way, is, who's seen Hamilton by show of hands? Wow, that's a lot. Who, who maybe hasn't seen it but has listened to it? Right on. Is anyone listening to it right now? <laughs> I wouldn't blame you. 
I'll, I'll point out the stuff to take your earbuds out um, to listen to. But, um, but uh, so I kept writing these essays that said that hip hop has this special potential for telling stories on stage. And then once you write something like that, then you have to keep showing up every time someone writes a musical that might do the thing that you wanted someone to do. So in 2007, I went to see this musical off-Broadway in New York by a bunch of people I'd never heard of before without high hopes. I didn't take a date because I didn't have high hopes for it. And within five minutes, I just knew actually, like, here's the guy. Like, this is the thing that I've been looking for. And the show was In the Heights. Uh, and it was written by Lin-Manuel Miranda. It was his first show in New York, and he was playing the lead. He was playing Musnavi. So the publicist, so I wrote this review that explained why I thought Lin was, was a significant arrival in New York, um, how important I thought it was what he was doing. Um, Lin liked that review, uh, and uh, the publicist for the show knew us both and thought we'd hit it off, and so he fixed us up. And so this whole crazy story about Hamilton actually begins the very first time that Lin and I meet um, to have drinks one night uh, after a performance of In the Heights at a, at a little bar in the theater district. And, and that first conversation is the one where I ask him what he's doing next. Uh, and he tells me that the next thing he wants to do, because he's reading this book by Ron Chernow about Alexander Hamilton, is to write a hip-hop mixtape about Hamilton's life. I thought that was crazy. Um, and told him that I thought it was crazy. At least I assume I told him it was crazy. We both had so much to drink that night that neither of us is quite sure like how the conversation went. Um, we had to piece it together from like emails we exchanged in the days that followed. Um, but I think it, I, I must have thought it was crazy because I still think it's sort of a crazy idea. But I also knew that after Heights and after getting to spend a little time with him and seeing how his brain worked, I was never gonna bet against the guy. So hip hop mixtape about the founding fathers, uh, sure. So I think everybody knows what comes next. Has everybody seen the video from the White House in 2009, right? This is when Lynn performs. This is like baby Lynn, like looking very young, and Alex Lacamoire at the piano performing for the Obamas a couple months into the Obama presidency. And, uh, and I love this video. I love the fact that it exists for all time on YouTube until the internet burns out or whatever happens to it. Because you can see what happens, this experience of a, what is now an accepted part of our lives, there's this Broadway musical that's become a cultural phenomenon, and you can see people react to the idea of it. Not the hype, not like what other people have said about it, just Lynn saying to this room full of people who don't know what's coming, I'm going to rap about Alexander Hamilton. And what is their reaction, your reaction? That everybody laughs, because it is a funny idea. It's not supposed to work. It sounds like South Park or something. <laughs> and then what happens? People get very quiet in the room, and they listen very attentively when they see that Lynn is not actually joking about this. And as soon as it ends, they're on their feet. Huge standing ovation. Is that Lynn calling to check on the story I'm telling? <laughs> Huge standing ovation led by the President and the First Lady of the United States. So that, that four minutes, that is what has happened over the last six years, just compressed into one night in one room. You go from, this is a ludicrous idea that can't possibly work, to, oh, actually, this is real, I should pay attention to it, to rapture and joy. And um, one of those, like, take your earbuds out lessons I want to try to impart today, if, if I impart nothing else, is when you have the crazy idea that other people tell you isn't going to work, and some voice in your own head is telling you might not work, ignore those voices. Because there is one clear lesson of Hamilton, which is now the most successful musical in the history of Broadway, that uh, sometimes it's the crazy ideas that change the world. 
So that was 2009. It took until 2015 for Hamilton to end up uh, for its opening night on Broadway. I was very lucky to be around for most of those years. I was not writing about it at that point. Uh, the story is a little crazier than that. Um, as Linda mentioned in, in, in her introduction, um, I had left the magazine business to go to work for the theater, for the public theater in New York. And part of my job was to propose artists and to bring in projects that the public should produce. And the first artist that I proposed to my boss, Oscar Eustace, uh, was my pal Lynn, because he had done this Hamilton thing at the White House two years earlier, and then no one had heard anything about it. So why don't we bring him in and find out what's going on? So I was gonna take this story to the grave, but Oscar tells it for a laugh, so I'll tell it for a laugh. Oscar's reaction to my suggestion that he uh, meet with Lin-Manuel Miranda to talk about Alexander Hamilton was to say, nah, not interested. And part of the reason is that when In the Heights won its four Tony Awards back in 2008, it did so at the expense of one of Oscar's musicals. So I said to Oscar, come on, come on, let's have him come in, let's see what's going on, it's worth just taking the meeting. Uh, and he says, fine, fine, fine. So then I email my friend Lynn and I tell him that Oscar is super excited to meet him. <laughs> and then Lynn comes in, the three of us talk, and the two of them fall in love immediately. And then it takes a couple more years. It takes two years until Lynn and his collaborators are ready to make an arrangement to have this show um, have a home at a specific theater. Luckily, it was ours. It was the public. But what it meant is that for all those years, I got to watch this happen. My memory of those years of Lynn bringing things in and letting us hear them is like, is like standing under an avalanche of incredible songs because they just kept coming. Now, some of you raised your hands because you work in the theater. There's this great, I can't remember where I heard it now, I wish I could, but there's this great saying that a new musical is an organism bent on self-destruction. Like, musicals are really hard. They're collaborative. They go wrong in lots of ways. And for whatever reason, Linz didn't. He just kept bringing in these great songs. One of those first meetings that we had in the summer of 2011, he gave me a CD. Um, like it wasn't even like Dropbox or something. It was like an actual piece of plastic with his demo recordings on it. And these are the first nine, eight or nine songs he'd written for Hamilton. And they're demos. So it's his recordings of him singing these songs that he'd put together on Logic Pro on his laptop. And when people ask me, like, when did you know what this was, like what this was going to be? And it was then. I remember exactly, even now, six years later, the day I came home from one of these meetings with this disc, popped it in my laptop in my apartment in Brooklyn and listened to it. And when I heard his demo of Helpless for the first time, you all, do you guys know Helpless? It's the, for those who don't, it's this sweet duet in act one. Eliza is the, is the girl that falls in love with Hamilton. Hamilton loves Eliza and they're gonna get married. Um, so imagine Lynn himself singing this song in falsetto um, and then dropping down to his own voice to do the 16 bar rap in the middle of it. But it was, you know, I loved it because structurally it's a Ja Rule and Ashanti song or it's Crazy in Love, the Beyonce Jay-Z song, except it's four minutes of like unbelievably specific, clear theatrical storytelling. And when it ended, I just thought if he finishes this thing, it's going to be the best musical of our generation. That was 2011. So if you're listening to the songs now, like if you only started listening to it because of um, the one book program here, and you're wondering, uh, are you going to get tired of these songs? Uh, no, probably not. At least not of my experience as any judge, because I've been listening to those songs now for six years. And, 
and you know, they get into your bones. Um, what I saw in those years is another lesson about this experience. There's a paradox. So on one hand, you've got Lynn, the composer and the lyricist, going away, writing these songs, bringing them in, everyone being amazed. Theater is collaborative, so you need that, but if it's only that, you don't have a hit. You just have like one guy who's a very talented artist. The paradox of Hamilton is that the single-handed achievement uh, of what Lynn did here has basically three parallels in the entire history of Broadway. Someone who wrote the music, wrote the words, uh, had the original idea and played the lead. I mean, you can count on one hand. Lots of people have tried, like, who has done this before? A few people have. The paradox is that you've also got all these people who are working with Lynn to realize those songs on stage. Um, you've got his director, Tommy Kale, who seems to share a brain with Lynn, as does Alex Lacamoire, the music director. If you go back and watch that White House video from 2009, the guy at the piano, that's uh, Lack, Alex Lacamoire. And uh, the, the orchestrator, the music director, is the person who has to try to turn those demo recordings into things that a 10-person orchestra can play. That was Lack's job. You've got the choreographer, Andy Blankenbuehler, who is this kind of Hamiltonian genius. Like, he thinks fast, he talks fast, he moves fast. And if you've been lucky enough to see the show already, then you see like the way those dancers move on stage. It's a reflection of someone whose brain is just very, very high octane. Um, you know, I could, I, I could, you know, well, I wrote a whole book about what I saw in those years. There are a couple moments, though, that really do stand out. One is uh, in the summer of 2013 at Vassar College, which is just north of New York, there was a workshop where they gave Lynn and Tommy and some actors a week to um, put some of Hamilton uh, in front of music, behind music stands and uh, let us hear what it was. And that day, I remember one of my like clear takeaways from that was if you're, so I was sitting about there in the audience, and if you can imagine this is the stage at Vassar, standing right about here on the stage was the most charismatic human I'd ever seen on stage. I'd never, I was like, who is that guy? And that was David Diggs, um, who would be with the show from that week at Vassar all the way up until he won the Tony Award for creating the roles of uh, the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson. And then the, the even bigger one uh, was this workshop in May of 2014. So there's a moment in the life of a show when it's going to stop sounding like um, you're hearing songs out loud and going to start feeling like a thing that's going to exist on stage. That day in May of 2014 was the first time that um, the world got to see just how radical Lynn and Tommy's project had become. They had decided that very purposely, they weren't going to have the people who were going to perform the Founding Fathers look like the Founding Fathers. They were going to have the people who were best equipped to play those roles play those roles. That meant that the cast was going to be primarily artists of color, black, Latino, Asian, white. That mix is something that seemed radical at the time to basically everybody but Lynn and Tommy. Tommy described it this way. He said, this is a story about America then told by America now. So it's the reality of 21st century America and our multicultural present day society looking back at a very different moment in our history. So what we saw that day in 2014 is the first time that it wasn't just these artists standing at music stands anymore with scripts in their hands. The first act of that show they staged, which meant they were in costume. I will never forget the sight, the first time seeing 
that company, those artists of color, in the costumes that we have come to know from lots of portraits and documentaries and stuff like that um, about the uh, Revolutionary Army, the Continental Army, George Washington's army. To see those artists standing on boxes at the end of the Yorktown sequence and saying, we won, the result was volcanic. The audience went crazy. I've never heard anything like it. If you know the show, you know there are a couple more songs to go, and then you get intermission. And that intermission break, people were out in this tiny lobby at the 52nd Street workshop, and there was just this buzz in the room of people sort of not believing what we'd just seen. By the way, there's one thing that seems clearer to me now than it did then, that there is the radicalism of saying, we in the 21st century, a much more diverse and tolerant America are going to reclaim what happened back then. But there's also the radicalism of having depicted the founding at all. So here's a question that I've been asking lately. I didn't think of this in time to put it in the book, but I'm always waiting for like, people to come up with stuff that I'm missing. But I've only realized lately that I had never seen the founding of the United States depicted dramatically until I saw it that day. Like, how is it possible that we write these huge, thick books about the founding and every person who has any connection to the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, but we don't actually see it depicted? So I've been trying to think, like, whatever, you know, when has this been done? There's a musical from the 60s called 1776. Probably, maybe some of the theater people in here know it. I doubt anybody else does. Uh, there was the HBO miniseries like 10 years ago, uh, John Adams, which had like a couple cool scenes. Um, there's like a spy show, I think, right now. Um, something about spies in the revolutionary era. What else? Is it based on the musical or is it a different thing? Okay, good. That's a new one. Set, it's a miniseries called... This is like not a joke, I'm literally writing this down. John Jakes, 1776, thank you. And then I guess there's a kid's show, right? Or something, like a cartoon? Yeah, what is it? Yeah. Yeah? Stand up, stand up. Yeah, go ahead. Face them. <laughs> go ahead. That's great. What's your name? What, what's your name? Z? Thank you. Th look, thank you for that contribution, Z. <laughs> Liberty Kids. I'll mention it next time, but the presentation won't be that good. <laughs> anyway, so that's one way in which uh, this show is just getting a lot more people thinking about this era and these figures than Americans uh, tend to do, which, which is surprising because of all the, you know, the bookshelf, the, the shelves and shelves and the bookstores full of the nonfiction books, but we don't see it, we don't, we don't depict it. You can compare that to something like the way that the English 
history is depicted on its screens and movies and stages of um, the way that the, you know, the, the royal line is depicted. And, you know, you, you, can't, you can't throw a crown without hitting one of those shows. So part of what I got to see then is the impact of this show. And if you want to see like the, the effect that the show is beginning to have, the book is actually both those things. Um, the book is an attempt to reckon with the impact of the show, and it is itself a product of the show. And here's how. Uh, the show had its opening night off-Broadway at the Public Theater in February of 2015. That night was the first time the critics were going to come and write about this thing. And it was a very reassuring night because the critics liked Hamilton. And there's always a chance, you know, it, it's happened. You feel like the show is good and you're proud of it and then you put it up and the critics come and see it and they don't like it at all. So it was a big relief that the critics liked it and we knew that the show was going to go from the Public Theater uptown to Broadway. That night, another late night, another night where perhaps we'd had a couple of drinks, um, Lynn says to me that there's going to be a book about the show and that we should do it together. And sort of like Oscar, my first reaction was, nah, I'm not that interested in doing that. Partly it's because you, maybe you've seen like lots of Broadway musicals have these kind of companion books, these coffee table books, and the, there's like an oral history at the front, and then the script is at the back, and you know, they're good, but I wasn't that interested in writing one. And then this is where it's, it's an effect of the show. I couldn't, genuinely couldn't imagine a book that would do what they wanted this book to do that would be fit to stand alongside this show. Because I had seen for years how unbelievably disciplined Lynn and Tommy and everybody involved with the production had been about every detail. Like, Nothing was left to chance, nothing was, was thoughtless, everything had a reason for being there, and it just seemed really daunting to come up with a book that would try to apply all of those principles. But I told Lynn I'd go away and think about it, and I went away and thought about it. And I thought, as one does in moments of, of indecision, about what Stephen Sondheim would do in that situation. <laughs> and there is the, the, you know, his, um, everyone should read it. Anyone who's an artist, forget whether it's theater or some other art form. If you, if you like to create things, you should read um, his book, Finishing the Hat, which is a collection of, it's a lyric anthology, but at the beginning it has some of his like writing lessons, which are incredible and apply to everything. And the first one is Content Dictates Form, which sounds puzzling, but it actually makes a lot of sense. Content Dictates Form means you need to know the story that you're trying to tell, and then you can figure out how to tell it. You, had, you need to get clear in your head why it is that you want to create something, and then the structure and the tools and the style, all that stuff will, be, will, will follow. So I came back to Chicago from opening night uh, and sobered up, and I thought, what is the story that you could tell? And as Linda mentioned, the story I realized that would be worth telling about this show is the story of two revolutions. Hamilton tells the story of the American Revolution, this thing that bizarrely we have not seen very much of. But the show is itself a revolution because I could see how it was going to change Broadway, how it was changing the way hip hop worked in the theater, um, how we felt about our own founding. And the thing that was most exciting to me, having spent a couple of years around these artists, is how it was changing their lives. I mean, David didn't have an agent when he got cast in Hamilton, and now he is a bona fide star. And that story happens again and again. These artists who have this unbelievable talent, but they couldn't find a way to express it because Broadway wasn't set up for them. 
And one of the exciting things about Hamilton is that that now that the show is such a hit, now it's going to get produced again and again and again. That need just grows by orders of magnitude. So I thought that would be a cool story to tell. If you could somehow tell the story of these two revolutions proceeding together, show that how intertwined they are from opening night, I'm sorry, from um, that first night at the White House in 2009 to 2015 when the show opened on Broadway, alongside the, sh the story that's told by the show itself, that would be an interesting little puzzle. And so that's what we decided to do. Uh, and only when I started doing the research did I realize something that um, I can't believe I'd missed in the first place. That those two revolutions I thought I was seeing are actually the same revolution. I found when I was doing research for the book, uh, the first editor of Alexander Hamilton's papers, like 130 years ago, said that the dominant purpose of his life was not creating the treasury, it wasn't helping Washington win the war, it was creating a national sentiment. In other words, it was a change in the way that Americans thought about themselves to encourage them to think of themselves less as Virginians or Pennsylvanians or New Yorkers and to think of themselves as Americans and to create the structures and the institutions that helped give shape to that impulse and to encourage it. And as I watched what Hamilton, the show based on his life, was doing in 2015, well, it was the same thing. I would stand outside the theater sometimes on 46th Street in Manhattan and just gawk at the people who would show up, hundreds of them, every day, just to stand close to the theater. Old people, young people, every color, every background. Day after day after day. They would line up for autographs, they would pose for selfies under the marquee. I don't know, maybe some of you guys were there doing this. But that idea that there's a way that Americans can come together and need to come together is something that was reflected in Hamilton's life and in the show that's based on his life. Two aspects of one revolution. It's why you have Michelle Obama saying that Hamilton is the greatest piece of art she's ever seen in any form in her life, close quote, but Dick Cheney also liked it. And like, there are not a lot of things <laughs> that Michelle Obama and Dick Cheney agree on. Dick Cheney apparently like smiled in a theater, like who would have guessed? Um, and there's this lesson that I take away from that. Americans are really good at talking about freedom. We love to talk about freedom and we are protective of our freedom and we like to be individuals and be able to do our own thing. But what we forget is what it took for us to win our freedom in the first place and what it takes to preserve it and that is to work together. In the Revolutionary War, you know how the British, the British were so confident that they were gonna defeat these, these um, scruffy colonies on the other side of the planet because they assumed that all they needed to do was show up, convince the colony, pit the colonies against one another, and they would never overcome their differences and fight as one to win. And they were wrong. And then, 10 years later, when the Constitution, is found, uh, the Constitution is drafted, there's no precedent in human history for someone trying to start a republic on a scale as vast as those 13 colonies. But James Madison and Alexander Hamilton and the rest of the people who agreed with them said no. Hamilton gave the speech in Poughkeepsie when the Constitution was being debated, ratification was being debated, and he said something along the lines of, he trusted that through good government, the differences between the people in different stations in different colonies would be overcome and they would be bound together. 
and they would take on, he said something like they would take on the same complexion. We had to find a way to get together to win our freedom. We had to find a way to stay together to preserve our freedom. And that hasn't really changed now. This is the second lesson. If, you're, if you've got your earbuds back in, take them out for a second. The second lesson of my experience of Hamilton is what I saw Lynn and his collaborators do. Lynn had this idea. He got people to agree with it, to think it was worth trying to realize. They shared this vision. They somehow found this shorthand to transact a lot of business really quickly. From watching them work, I understood better what it must have been like to watch Washington and Hamilton work. Or to watch that first cabinet with Jefferson and you, you know, the cabinet debates in Act Two. It's not just they always agree with each other. Sometimes the point is that you don't agree with each other. Sometimes you need the friction. But somehow, these guys stayed together long enough and collectively, they got free. This is the lesson, I think, if you boil it down, that if you want to change the world, you need to work together. You need to find people who agree with you, who want to see the change that you want to see, and you have to find a way to all pull in the same direction. The same theme I found in my research on the other book, which I can talk about later if you're interested, Young Radicals, 100 years ago, right before World War I, these uh, college graduates were moving to the cities. There were all these possibilities for American life. And when they wanted to get free, they didn't go sit by a pond in Massachusetts. They moved to Greenwich Village, where they could be with the other people who wanted to throw off Victorian strictures, wanted to say whatever was on their minds, create new kinds of art in new kinds of ways. Americans are good at freedom. We're not as strong on union, but union is the thing that won our freedom and that preserves it. So the book came out a year and about a week ago. And I know this because a week ago someone pointed it out on Twitter and Lynn retweeted it and it like set off this love bomb across all of social media, which was nice. Um, since the book came out, the show has come to Chicago, as many of you, maybe that's where a lot of you have seen it. It's now opened in San Francisco as well. Um, uh, Hamilton is doing well. Um, people still want to come see it. Has anyone heard the mixtape? The mixtape is, is a recording that came out uh, about six months ago. It's a set of songs that, were, uh, that are covers of songs in the show and are songs inspired by the show. Um, I, I thought that that would be received well, um, though I did not expect that at, at one point the rap charts would be dominated by, by the number one slot would be the cover album based on the Broadway musical, and number two would be the Broadway musical cast album on the rap charts. Um, Lynn and I finished the book with a lot of caffeine um, and having to trust each other a lot because when we were writing it, it took us, we only had a little less than six months to do the whole thing um, with him performing seven times a week, with me living in Chicago and still running my series at the Public Theater and with both of us being the fathers of toddlers. Um, when we had our book party, this is another one of those like science fiction-y things. They hadn't, they didn't order enough like they didn't print enough books and they had no capacity for like ramping up production really quickly if it turns out people wanted to read the book. So we had no books at our book party, um, <laughs> which is apparently like people in publishing think I'm joking, but it's literally true. Like there, there was not a copy of the book at the book party, um, which was odd. But like I said, science fiction movie. Um, I am 
I am very happy and very grateful to have had the chance to be around my friend when he was creating this masterpiece. I'm really happy that he asked me to write the book with him uh, and somehow knew that I would talk myself into it once I got home and started thinking about Stephen Sondheim. Um, the third thing I would say, takeaway lesson from this, is that if Lin-Manuel Miranda asks you to collaborate with him, you should do that. <laughs> it will be worth the time. Um, but the, you know, the last point I want to talk about like I said at the beginning about why I like talking to students. Um, because I think that for all the things that Hamilton has already done, the awards, the 11 Tony Awards, and the Pulitzer, and the MacArthur, and all of that stuff, uh, the, the success as a, as a business entity that it's had, um, we are much closer to the beginning of this show's impact on America than we are to the end. Um, the best conversations I got to have when I was working on the book were with students and the teachers of students. When the show was still downtown at the Public Theater, the public worked with a program that brings kids from under-resourced New York City schools to come see musicals. These are kids who are not otherwise going to get to see shows on Broadway or off-Broadway. And it was life-changing for them. They told their teachers afterwards that in some cases it, it, it gave them this new connection to the founding, uh, it made them feel like they were Americans for the first time. These are kids um, from immigrant communities in a lot of cases. I am willing to believe that that is going to be a popular reaction as this show gets more traction because I know what happened to the original cast. When I, you know, the reason why this book managed to have so many intimate details about the people that I'm writing about, Anthony Ramos, Renee Elise Goldsberry, Pippa Sue, is because I'd gotten to know them for years before I started showing up with a notebook. And so I already knew what it had meant to them. Um, Leslie Odom Jr., who uh, created the role of Aaron Burr and won a Tony Award for it, told me that he had always felt a connection to African-American history, but not to American history. He thought that the experience of the founders was somehow separate from his own experience. But after having spent these years around Hamilton, having to step into the shoes of Aaron Burr, he could see their humanity more clearly. It gave him this connection that he didn't have before. David Diggs told me if he had seen a black man playing George Washington, which is what happens in Hamilton, uh, when he was a kid growing up in Oakland, California, and getting pulled over by the cops for no reason, as he put it, just a lot more things would have seemed possible to him in his life. Than, than they did the way he was coming up. So there are a lot of things that are uncertain about the future of Hamilton, but we know this is gonna happen. It might be a year, three years, five years, seven years, I don't know when it's gonna happen. But like every other hit musical, it's gonna get licensed for schools. Like this stage, within the next 10 years, there's gonna be a production of Hamilton on it. I called the people who run music licensing companies uh, and I asked them, what's going to happen when Hamilton gets licensed? And, and unanimously, they told me that as soon as schools are able to produce this for themselves, it's going to be the most popular show that's produced in America because everyone's going to want to do it. So what that means is we now have New York, Chicago, San Francisco. We have three people playing George Washington on stage someplace tonight. Whatever, however many years it takes for us to hit this moment when schools can produce it for themselves. Now imagine a night, or you know, spread out over a season, let's say, where you've got 700 George Washingtons, 800. 
I mean, every other metric that people have applied to Hamilton has been wrong on the low end. Like the book, that had no, we had no books at the book party. Like whatever the high watermark is for the show, for, for student productions, it's probably gonna be higher for Hamilton. What does it do when you've got not just David and Leslie and his, and their castmates having this experience, but you've got a generation of kids who are gonna grow up with Hamilton as part of their development, as sure as like recess and like the track team is. Uh, I don't know exactly. I can only extrapolate from the stuff I've seen, but I have to think that the effect of that is gonna be profound. You know, these are, these are tough times for this country in a lot of ways, right? I mean, they're scary times. They're, we are in uncharted territory in a lot of ways. Um, what I saw in Young Radicals about the experience of these young, idealistic young people right before World War I is something that I now begin to feel, which is when you think that you can take a certain kind of forward motion for granted that every year is gonna bring more progress, that somehow we're working things out. And when you realize one day is maybe that's not true. And maybe you've been naive about that. And maybe the progress moves forward, but you can also lose ground. One of the things that gives me hope about whatever is coming next is that those 700 productions a year, 800, whatever they're gonna be, like that cake is baked. Like Hamilton is done. It was created in a hopeful moment for this country in an administration that I think shared a lot of its worldview. I wrote this long essay for BuzzFeed. I you know, could go on about it here, but you can just read that. I you know, wrote it all down. Um, and, and we know that a couple years from now, that's gonna start to happen. Um, I heard a phrase this morning, democratic commitment, which I guess is a value. I don't wanna screw it up and try to define it poorly, but I understand that's a value for this school, and I love that phrase. I've never heard those words in quite that sequence before. But another lesson from Young Radicals that helps me understand why Hamilton is important is that in a democracy, the idea that we all have something to say applies to politics. You know, It's why we have the First Amendment. It's why we are allowed to protest on street corners. It's why no one can censor the things we want to put in the newspaper. But it also applies to culture. There is a value in a democracy. There's a necessity for people to get to express their own truth, to create things that reflect the world as they see it, their own experiences in their own ways. The most exciting thing about Hamilton, to me, is not that there are gonna be more musicals about the Founding Fathers, though I'm sure there are. It's not even that there's gonna be more hip hop around Broadway, though you know, that's already gonna happen. It's that, it's that students are gonna take as a starting point what was for Lynn an enormous breakthrough. This is, again, Sondheim. I talked to him for the book. And he has seen this happen for 60 years around Broadway. There's a hit and then people follow the hit and they try to cash in. He said the important thing about Hamilton is that it will encourage artists to be, as he put it, more personal about their work. So it's not that you and I don't mean you like the abstract you, I mean literally you sitting here, if you have any sort of artistic inclination, might come away from Hamilton more inspired to write a hip hop musical about some other historical figure in American life. It's that you can know that his crazy idea worked 
and that your crazy idea might work. And if you're true to the voice in your head that is saying, this is how the world looks to me, and this is how I want to try to express it, that there might be an audience for that. And my confidence, my hope about what's going to happen to Hamilton in the future is based on this sense that, as one of the characters in Young Radicals put it, in a democracy, we need culture because culture helps us, um, as he put it, to understand each other more warmly. That there is a way that that Hamiltonian revolution about um, creating a national sentiment and creating a place where we can find each other requires artists to really take hold. Uh, you know, I, uh, I got asked um, right after Hamilton opened on Broadway by a magazine editor um, to write a story for a magazine, which I won't name. The, uh, the pitch went something like this. So um, you guessed right the last time you tried to say that a certain artist was going to be uh, the next big thing. You know, when you wrote this about Lynn back in 2007 when no one thought In the Heights was such a big deal. Um, do you want to write that again about who, whichever the new artist is going to be who's going to be like that big a deal? And I only had to think about it for like half a second and I was like, definitely not. Like, I'm totally happy to retire as like a prognosticator about that stuff, like, <laughs> like one for one. Like, that's good for me. But what I realize now is the hope I'm feeling about what the generation coming up, by which I mean your generation, is going to do with this show is exactly what I felt about Land back in 2007. I don't know what's coming. I would never bet against it. Thanks very much. So we have time for questions. And I guess some of you are going to get credit for this somehow. Um, well played, you guys, however you manage that. Um, so I guess there are microphones in the audience, so if you have a question, um, raise your hand and wait for the mic to find you. Here's one down here. Oh, this, right, right. Mm -hmm. Okay, I can go first. A few months ago here, they had a faculty panel discussing the um, responsibility of the artist to history. Mm. Now, you've very passionately talked about what the effect we're seeing on in students. You're pulling from primary text as your sources. What's your feeling about what the artist owes to history? The artist owes to history? In terms of its reflection of historical events and individuals. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I got to experience two... Um, approaches to that, because all those years I spent in script meetings with Lynn, um, you know, he, he was um, remarkably true to the historical record, which is why Ron Chernow, who inspired, you know, his biography inspired this show in the first place, was around a lot too. Lynn said he wanted historians to take it seriously, and he wasn't kidding about that. Still, when Lynn needed to, he would sort of shift things around a little bit. It's the, it's the prerogative of the artist that if it turns out like the chronology between um, Alexander and Angelica is like a little different in the show than it is, um, then, uh, you know, that's great. Because for an artist, you're trying to arrive at some point, uh, an effect that you're allowed to sort of color outside the lines from time to time. Um, then, you know, at the whole time I'm um, hanging around with the Hamilton folks, I'm also, you know, in archives trying to 
get the story of Young Radicals right. And there, uh, I have no leeway. Like, my responsibility to history is 100%. Like, I can't deviate a, you know, a, a punctuation mark from what people actually said and did back then. Um, the responsibility I think you have is to take something that happened in the past, whether it's creatively or in a, in a scholarly way, um, and present it to your own time in a way that will resonate. Like, you know, I had this thought that um, we think about the past as uh, in terms of distance. Like, it was far in the past. It was dis in, the, in the distant past. I don't think that's... History to me, after these last six years around these two projects, doesn't feel like that to me. It's more like heat. Like, things have heat, you know? Like, you take something out of the stove and take something off a stove, and some pots stay hot for hours. And some pots come back to room temp, like, immediately. That, to me, is what historical events now feel like. Things lose their heat at different rates. And I think about something like, like you know, the story of Alexander Hamilton, clearly that is, that is still hot to the touch. This now, because of the election last year, these figures I'm writing about in the 19-teens who saw their world go up in flames, that still has heat again, too. So I think the question is, find the stuff that still has heat uh, and stoke that flame. Uh, another question? Oh, yes, down here. What character would you play in Hamilton? Would I play? If you could choose. This um, makes a large assumption, <laughs> which is that I have a tenth of the talent to play any of those characters. Are we making that assumption? No, we're not making that assumption. I'm just curious. We are in the realm of science fiction, like I said. Um, uh, you know, it would be fun. I don't know. It seems like it would be really satisfying to play George Washington, you know? Because Washington is the one that, as Lynn points out, you might miss this watching it, but he starts out only rapping, not singing, in a moment of great crisis in Right Hand Man, like the Americans are getting their butts kicked uh, in the early days of the Revolutionary War. And by the time he leaves the stage at the end, uh, in uh, One Last Time, um, he's singing this glorious, you know, this glorious final song. To go on that journey from the, from the sort of like embattled commander who has to somehow learn how to lead, that looks fun to me. I don't know, how about you? What would you play? I don't know. Come on. Okay, you're not gonna do less guessing. Tell me, tell me in the lobby if you don't wanna tell the whole room. Uh, other questions? Uh, more hands? Yes, here's one. Oh, hi. hi. I actually wanted to know when when you talked about your you know your journey when you first um, met Lynn and how you knew like you just knew he was going to be great and then you knew Hamilton was going to be great. But was there a moment like on this journey from idea to reality where you had to kind of regroup, refocus, where you had a doubt because it seems like one miraculous event after the other. And you know I don't know I, my perception of reality is, is kind of maybe different. But was there a moment where you thought, what the hell am I doing? No. At all. No, there really that's was. That's fantastic. what I mean. Like, th this is the science fiction of this. I got to like, change this next time I talk about this show. Like, nobody, this was nobody's first rodeo around Hamilton. Everyone involved had been involved, ha had worked on shows and sweated on shows that didn't work. 
shows they thought were going to work, and then it surprised them that it didn't work. Shows that they invested so much time and energy in, and then it flamed out, you know, and it didn't even make it to the stage. We all know how that feels. I know how that feels. Oscar knows how that feels. Jeffrey Seller, the commercial producer, we've all been there. We all know the struggle that usually goes into a show. It didn't happen with Hamilton, and no one knows why. I literally wrote the book about this, and I can't tell you like how exactly it happened that this avalanche of songs just kept coming. I mean, everything has to go right for something like this to become a cultural phenomenon. Like it doesn't, if, if something's a little off, it's a good show or it's a very popular thing, but no one is treating it the way people are treating Hamilton. This is just the, you know, what it happens like what? Once a generation, let everyone, everything sort of clicks into place. This is the once, I think at least so far. I'd be so happy if it turns out it happens 10 times for my generation. But for the time being, like, this is it. I don't know, it's mysterious. Like, yeah, I, I would like to tell you, it would be in the book if it happened, like, and then there was the dark night of the soul, you know? <laughs> and they really didn't know when they showed up the next day, like, would Lynn have walked off? The, no, like, it was just, everyone was very, yeah. Another question? What would uh, be your here. favorite song okay. from Hamilton? Up uh, here. Uh, sorry, I can't see. Right uh, here. Here, I'll stand. Hi. Hi. Okay. Yeah, what would be your favorite song from Hamilton and why? I like Fave? the Schuyler Sisters. The Schuyler Sisters is yours? Mm -hmm. Why? It just sounds very lively and bright and it just gives you that good vibe, good yeah, mood. So. It does. It does. I mean, that's Lynn's, one aspect of Lynn's brilliance is that he managed to just like take all these different musical traditions and just like skim the cream off all of them and make them sound like he spent his entire life doing nothing but write those songs. Um, I have two answers. Uh, if I'm just listening to it at home, it's always gonna be helpless because literally every time I hear those oohs like right at the beginning, I think about how hard I laughed when I heard Lynn do it on that recording, <laughs> on that demo, the first time I heard the song. Uh, but when I'm watching it, it's always the room where it happens, which if you've, those of you who have seen it probably know, uh, what Andy Blankenbuehler, the choreographer, has done is just like nothing I've ever seen. It's a, it's a way that you see this point in the show is where Aaron Burr, um, this you know, ambitious, calculating politician in the course of this song goes from trying to figure out how he's been left out of an important meeting to becoming a kind of supervillain. And you get to watch it happen. And it happens partly through the words, but mainly through the, for the physicality of it. And all the dancers around him are manifestations of that ambition turning malignant. And uh, you know, I've seen it done uh, God knows how many times by different actors playing Burr in different productions, and every time it just blows me away. Um, so yeah, so that, would be my, that would be my two answers. Uh, another question, I can't actually see that well, so maybe guys with the mics, if you will just sort of wave when you've got someone. Is there one down here somewhere? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I actually had, oh. <laughs> Testing, testing, okay, that's cool. So I actually had an initial question, but you kind of answered it halfway through. I was gonna ask, like, seeing that the cast for Hamilton um, is very diverse, you know, was there any intention or message that uh, was meant to be heard due to, like, the non-traditional casting for the roles? And you had answered that with the story of, uh, it, you know, it's, told, uh, it's the story of America then as told by the story of America now. Yeah. So I kind of have a follow-up question to that, where, you know, what was the, like, initial jerk of inspiration that caused um, such a displacement of the status quo of the American Revolution? 
Yeah, uh, the, I think it was a little bit of, um, of a hunch about who are the best people to play the roles and also what Lynn conceived of it to be in, in the beginning. Um, remember, he didn't say to me that night in 2008 that he wanted to write a Broadway musical about Hamilton. He said he wanted to write a hip-hop mixtape about Alexander Hamilton. If you're only hearing the voices, then, then it doesn't matter what they look like. You know? So that night, one of the things that I think we talked about, if I remember correctly, is uh, talking about like, which of our favorite rappers is going to play Thomas Jefferson. You know, or like, is Common a good George Washington? Or is like, so it was on our minds that you're doing this kind of star-studded project that's gonna you know, be in a certain musical style. It doesn't matter what they look like. But as Lynn thought more and more about making it something that's gonna exist on stage, then his brain shifts to who are the people I know that I can imagine playing these roles? And so I think the first one he had in mind was Washington. Um, his friend Chris Jackson, who was in, um, in the Heights with him, he played Benny in the original Broadway company of, of Heights, was the first person he thought of for Washington. And then once you start with Chris playing the guy who's on our money, then you've already broken that, you know, there's no going back at that point. Um, and there, it's in the book. Uh, Ron Chernow had been around Lynn, you know, consulting with him, advising him about this show for quite a while. The first time he went to uh, sing through of part of the show, and um, and it, it, he was taken aback by seeing the cast that he had lined up, and he planned to like you know have it out with Lynn about it, as he as he told me in this interview. And then within five minutes, he went from being like skeptical of it to becoming like an ardent champion of the idea that not only can anybody sing these roles, but it is crucial to the lesson, uh, lesson crucial to the, to, the, to the spirit of the show that this be a story about then told by America now. Another question? Yes. Hi. Hi. Um, when the show is performed at 700 different places at 700 different yeah. times, it'll certainly be performed at places that don't have the option of much diversity. Um, so are there, thoughts about, are there thoughts about that impact when you're in an audit, when you're out of school that you're only gonna have principally white actors? Yeah, yeah. Um, who knows? Like, we're gonna find out, you know? I think it's, uh, it's hard to imagine that anybody involved with the production is ever gonna insist that it be produced a certain way, you know? Um, but like I said, one of the things that's exciting to me about this show is that it's already happening, that you have casting notices going out in New York City casting agencies that are looking for different skills than a Broadway company normally needs, or a touring company normally needs. And what that means is you're looking in different places for that talent. It's already opening doors to uh, artists who might not have had a door open for them otherwise. So my hope is that even if it's, yes, there are undoubtedly places where the only way you can do Hamilton in a school is if the cast is entirely white kids. But my hunch is that there are gonna be a lot of places where there's gonna be an opportunity created that wouldn't have existed had the show been something else. And you know, there are many things I'm excited to watch happen in the next 10 years around the show, and that's definitely one of them. Another question, I think we have a little more time. Yeah, uh, another question somewhere? Hand up over here. There's a mic. Is it someone I went back there too? 
Okay, back there and then, and then over here? Okay, then Linda, and then over there. And I think that might be all the time we'll have. Yes? It's like multicultural um, people in a play? Lynn, Lynn and Tommy wanted, yeah, like they wanted to see a diverse company on stage telling the story. Yeah, it's really cool. Awesome. It is, yeah. Linda. Um, if you could come up with a dream project for you and Lynn in the next five to ten years, what might it be? Uh, wow. Um, a dream project for me and Lynn, I don't know, to be honest. Uh, I, I mean, part of it is that uh, um, I am a I, you know, I back, I, I believe in that guy's talent and Alexander Hamilton, a hip hop musical, um, came out of such a strange, unlikely place that I sort of wouldn't want to come up with an idea because I'm always going to believe in his next crazy idea, whatever it might be. So I don't know. Um, but that's a good question. I got to think about that. Uh, yes, over here on the, down here, uh, like fourth row. Uh, no, really? Okay. And then next, down here. I'm trying. I'm sorry. Okay, why don't you just stand up and project and we'll hear it. Thanks, me too. Right, so the, 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 <laughs> uh, the question, if you didn't hear, it was about um, was I around when Lynn approached investors? And Lynn didn't, I don't think. Um, he and Tommy decided pretty early in the process that they wanted to work with Jeffrey Seller. He's a commercial producer. He's one of the three producers of In the Heights, so they had a relationship there. Jeffrey, as the producer, was the one who went out and raised the money to um, um, put the show up. Jeffrey is the one who, who signed the papers with Oscar so that the public would develop it and have the world premiere there in 2015 before the Broadway run. Um, I wasn't around when Jeffrey talked to investors. Um, my, you know, based on what I've heard, um, like basically never has there been an easier time of raising the money because they would have these workshops like the one I described the first time that we saw the company in costume. And in the lobby afterwards, like there were friends of mine there who were commercial producers. And they were telling me that they wanted to invest. I mean, they didn't even need to be asked. They wanted in. Um, you know, it's, uh, to, to be someone trying to raise money for Hamilton after that weekend is a very nice problem for a commercial producer to have. Do we have time for one more, maybe? Maybe one more, after we've got one? We do not have time for one. Yes, okay, last question. Um, do you ever think of releasing the demo that you got? You know, um, Lynn, uh, uh, no, I wouldn't, because, you know, Lynn has put some of them online. If you look, um, when did he do it? I think it was right after the election, maybe, around Inauguration Day. Maybe he just thought the country needed to pick me up. Um, he released, he, he put a couple of the songs online, and uh, at least one of them is on the mixtape. Um, I can't remember which one now. Maybe it's um, Valley Forge. 
Does anybody know offhand? Is there a song called Valley Forge on the mixtape? It's kind of slow and sweet. Right. So that's one of the songs that was on my CD. Um, so yeah, some of them are out there. Um, I don't know. I mean, knowing Lynn, I wouldn't put it past him. I mean, the dude literally puts his baby pictures online. Um, so it's totally possible that you will all get to hear Lynn's falsetto Eliza one day. Uh, yes. Yes, one more. Hi. Um, what are you reading right now, and what are you listening to right now? I am listening to the new Kendrick Lamar album, which is amazing. Um, it's only been out for a couple days, but it's great. Um, I am reading... Uh, what am I reading? Uh, I'm reading a book, um, a new novel by Zachary Mason. There was a book that was out maybe like 10 years ago called The Lost Books of the Odyssey. Um, it was these variations on stories in the Odyssey, and I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for the guy's next book to arrive, and it finally has. So I just got that. I'm about to start reading. And is there anything else in the mix right now? Um, no, I don't know, but, you know, um, more soon, I hope. Why? What should I read? Do you have a recommendation? Nothing right now, no. What is it? <laughs> don't. don't. Okay. Well, if anyone has one, tell me on the signing line, because I always need one. Um, but thank you all very much for being here. This was a lot of fun. Round of applause. And as everybody's leaving, I was just informed that there are 10 copies of the book out there if you'd like to buy one and have it signed. If you have your own copy, it'll be signing right outside the door on your way out. Thank you.